All right, folks. Welcome back. You are still listening to Alabama's only union talk radio show. My name is Jacob Morrison. My co-host is Adam Keller. And we are now in overtime. This is the part of the program that we are in uh, that is only online. We are just on YouTube. And the Facebook stream seems to have died uh, this morning during the middle that is of the correct. show. So, when things um, crashed on us, uh, yeah, Facebook so- went kaput. We're only on YouTube right now. If you want to see us, you're going to have to go to YouTube. Um, and we will, of course, be uploading all of these segments as usual to the YouTube feed. And uh, you'll see the full show and the full overtime on our podcast feed. Wherever you get your podcast, we are there. Uh, but first up, we've got, we've got a couple of really good conversations for you, and I'm really excited about this. First up, we've got Mel Buer on the line. Um, have we got Mel on the line? We sure yeah, do. Hi. Mel, thank you hello, so hello. much for, for taking the time to talk to us. I appreciate it. Yeah, anytime. So you've been on before, but remind folks a little bit about you and your work. Uh, you know, um, t- talk to us about that. Yeah, uh, my name is Mel Buer. I'm a freelance reporter currently working mostly with the Real News Network. A lot of my w- recent work has been labor reporting across the Midwest. Um, I'm a university instructor at the University of Nebraska, and uh, podcaster, you know, writer, all sorts of stuff. Awesome. So what motivated you to do this piece? You know, why the railroads and, and, and why now? Uh, well, um, you know, Max Alvarez has done a couple of episodes with railroad workers over the last couple of months, starting from the institution of the high vis attendance policy with BNSF earlier this year. Um, He talked to Jeff Kurtz, who is a former railroad employee and former state senator, legislator from Iowa, um, as well as other railroad uh, employees about this attendance policy. Um, When Max approached me in May to cover this rally, the solidarity rally uh, in um, the beginning of May, um, a lot of it has to do with I'm located in the Midwest and I understand Midwestern labor politics uh, more generally. And uh, it was much easier for me to travel to this rally um, and speak to workers than it would have been for for Max. Um, and the story they told me is something else. You know, um, these workers are being destroyed by uh what is essentially uh, just these draconian sort of attendance policies and various cost-cutting measures that the rail carriers who are owned by billionaires like Warren Buffett and like overpaid CEOs are trying to um, implement to the detriment of the workers. Right. And this is not only is it to the detriment of the workers, but because rail is so intertwined with our supply chain and every it's it's to the detriment of everybody else and and which is kind of the hook of your article corporate billionaires are wrecking the supply chain just look at the railroads um but before we get to the effect that it that these policies and the effect on the workers are having on the supply chain uh give us some more details about the policies themselves what is it that the railroad workers are taking issue with and 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 what is its um what are these policies why are they being implemented um so yeah the the main topic of this article was about bnsf's high-vis attendance policy which is essentially this hyped up point system now point systems are 
you know, we hear about these a lot. Kellogg's workers have a point system at their factory. Um, a lot of industrial plants and even folks like Amazon will use point systems sort of like demerits. So essentially what it is is it, it forces individuals to uh, maintain a good attendance record. For the high-vis policy, individuals who work for the railroad get 30 points over the course of their career. So you start at 30 points. And if you miss a day or you miss a phone call um, or you have an emergency or union business comes up or any sort of thing that you may take unscheduled time off, um, they dock points. And uh, uh, if you if your balance goes from, you know, 30 to zero, then you are subject to discipline. Your point total is reset to 15 not the full 30, 15, um, and then you have to maintain that attendance as well as possible. The, the policy itself allows for individuals to get certain amounts of points back, but it requires you to pretty much be on for 14 days straight. And if you take even scheduled time off, as far as I understand it, that, that sort of accrual of days resets. Um, uh, if you have a balance that drops to zero three times, you're fired. Um, and this is, again, over the course of a career, right? And so what this is doing, essentially, is uh, forcing workers to be on all the time. Uh, the way that the scheduling works with the railroad is that oftentimes you don't know when you're going to be scheduled. You may have to call in in the morning uh, every day, and you may be at a terminal on a train within, you know, a couple of hours. So you can't even really like schedule doctor's appointments, for example, or, you know, go see your kids play their, their softball and baseball games or uh, really be involved with your family um, because they are requiring these workers to pretty much just be ready to clock in. And if you aren't ready to clock in, then you could potentially lose your job. Wow. That's... The idea of having any sort of point system over the course of your career is mind boggling <laughs> to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and, you know, every, every plant. Every plant. What? Every business now? that institutes the points. There we go. My, inter oh, my hey. internet today is not super great. So if I cut out, that's why. Um, gotcha. Yeah, we lost you at every plant. Uh, every plant has a different way of doing it. Um, Kellogg's did it differently. Um, but really all it is is just punitive policies that is meant to um, really make it difficult for you to strike any sort of meaningful work-life balance. You know, we all have lives outside of work, all of us, right? Um, and we should be able to be afforded the ability to build those lives outside of work. And time and time again, these workplaces, whether it's the railroads or whether it's, you know, uh, a bar down the street, all of these individuals are required by their employers to um, uh, create this life that privileges your work over what you're doing outside of work, you know, um, and with BNSF and with, uh, you know, similar policies across the rail industry, uh, there is no chance for you to be able to have that life. Even if you're making good money and you have, you know, you've built a family, you know. That's, you know, that's what really spoke to me, I think, was like the assault on our time. 
And, and this being a very flagrant example of it, but as you mentioned, it's it's not limited to just the rail industry, but you know, there there's an assault on our time that even when you're not being paid, even when you're not on the clock, you're still kind of on the clock. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're on call. Um, you, you know, you're expected to get the phone call, you know, depending on the type of work you do, it may be that you're expected to check that email, uh, 24 seven. Uh, and it seems like in, in our economy, as time has gone on, there's just been a steady encroachment upon our time and that blurring of what's work time, what's personal time. And it just makes me think as like, as a former history teacher, the fight for the eight-hour day was such a, a huge piece of the labor mo- movement as we understand it, and it feels like we have moved backwards mm-hmm. from that, you know, from that victory uh, of saying, "Hey, we have a solid eight hours for work. Anything over that's for overtime, et cetera, et cetera." And you know, this is, a, I think, one of the most flagrant examples out there of essentially being on call always. And that is just, it's shocking uh, to expect people to live this way. And I presume that is a part of why they're having trouble getting people to do these jobs. Well, certainly with the railroads, you know, um, there's plenty of open work with the railroads, um, but it's very difficult for a current rail employee to uh, talk to their friends or their family members or people who may be interested in hiring on the railroad. And, you know, uh, I've talked to some workers who are like, I can't look these people in the eye and tell them that this is a good job. Right. You know, mm-hmm. they need to know what they're signing up for. And I, frankly, they, many workers are like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend this, you know, uh, because what you're doing is you're sacrificing your personal life for uh, your life on the railroad. Um, and that's not how it should be, you know, because historically it's been a great great job to have it has stability it you know it affords you a a rewarding career to be a part of this um and the rail carriers themselves who are governed by you know ceos making millions of dollars a year billionaires who are raking in billions in profit um had turned it into crap you know and you can't you know you can't really how can you argue with that you really can't you know it's like uh, sure, you can hire on, but um, don't plan on starting a family. Or if you have a family, don't plan on being there for the birth of your children. You know things like that. So right, and and I remember hearing some uh, he- hearing one of the rail workers themselves say that in an interview, I think with Max, uh, either for the Real News or for Working People. Um, and it's just it, it, it's it's really sad, and it, it's something that like uh, like you and Adam have said, we've seen this uh, across a lot of the other labor disputes um, over the past couple of years, like at Kellogg's and the UMWA. And what I've said on this program is, it's almost like these people are being forced to sponsor their families, you know, not actually be a part of it. But go to work, earn a living, and write the check to their families and not be able to participate in any of the, you know, any of the life that the paycheck provides. Mm-hmm. And that's really just no way to live. It's no way to, um, you know, it, it, it's dehumanizing, it's alienating, um, and and it's all a choice that's being made by, like you said, these corporate billionaires. Um, is the attendance policy the biggest thing that these rail workers are up against, or are there other parts of the job that have deteriorated over time as well? Yeah, I mean, um, what they're seeing over the last five or six years is that there's been a lot of workers who have been laid off, and that got worse during the pandemic. 
Um, the rail carriers are also attempting to reduce the amount of crews on the trains. So right now there's two guys who run uh, the train. Um, and these trains can be anywhere from a mile to three miles long. Uh, they're getting longer. Um, and they want to reduce that crew size down to one person per train, which is dangerous, right? Right. Um, if there's a medical emergency on the train and you don't have a partner sitting there next to you, how do you know what's going to happen? You know, will you, you know, there, will this train just continue moving and crash into something? I mean, um, you know, if there's any sort of problems where there's derailments or emergencies that happen, um, having two people, granted, you would want a larger crew, but right now it's two people. Having two people on the train means that, you know, you can step into action and, and make sure that you're, you're, you're responding appropriately. Um, the fight for two-person crews is this sort of uh, auxiliary group that Smart TD, which is the unions, I believe it's Smart. Um, that what they're trying to do is they're lobbying state legislatures to introduce legislation that would bar the ability to, for these rail carriers to uh, reduce the, the crew sizes. Um, you know, other pieces of the current contract fight have to do with just general worker safety, with the ability to to have, you know, wages that are commensurate with what's going on in the economy. Um, all of these things are things that they're currently trying to fight for and have been trying to fight for for the last like, two years, almost three years now. Um, they started contract negotiations in 2019. Um, and we're reaching a, a very interesting point in that. Um, you know, so there's a lot of different things that uh, rail workers in the various divisions within uh, the Class 1 freight railroads uh, that they are worried about and trying to mitigate the effects of, you know. Um, but a very egregious one is this attendance policy because it does affect how well you can do your job if you're tired all the time or if you don't have the ability to take downtime in order to, uh, you know, mitigate the effects of being on 12 to 14 hours, you know, um, then those things are compounding, um, both emotionally and physically. So to me, like it, it's like there, there's such a short term focus by the companies here that not only are they sacrificing the health and safety of the workers involved, I mean, it seems like they would be sacrificing their own productivity uh, mm. eventually, right? Because you're burning these people out. Um, you're going to have more mistakes, more accidents, presumably. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, the, the whole idea of just having one person on these trains is just that is completely wild. Um, and, and I'm glad you mentioned the, the state by state fight because. You know, especially for those of you who are local who are listening, sounds like we need to be talking to our Alabama legislators uh, to see, you know, granted, not that there's a lot of hope for uh, <laughs> positive political change in the halls of Montgomery. Uh, but seriously, we need to be talking to them because, mm -hmm. you know, regardless of, of someone's politics, I mean, the supply chain is something that we're feeling right. uh, across the board, some of us more than others. Uh, but we're all feeling it. We all sense it. But. You know, I, to me, that's that's what really sticks out is like there's there's a level of cruelty and and short term thinking involved to such a degree that um, it's not even really healthy for their own business on a long time scale. Um, so, I, you know, I know capitalists are supposed to be uh, so rational, 
and, and, and so smart, uh, motivated by the profit motive that they're always going to make the rational market-based decision. Uh, at least that's what we're led to believe. But uh, to me, your reporting on the railway, railways just indicates that is not the case. Well, and, you know, it's funny because these policies have already had a ripple effect across the supply chain. Um, you know, uh, something like over a thousand workers have quit or moved to commuter rail, which is a different area. The I think nope. nope, we lost you again, Mel. Than the freight that we're talking about. Um, I- Mel, just a second. We lost you at um, they've moved to commuter rail. (laughs) Thanks. Yeah, sorry. This Internet is bad. Um, No worries. But, yeah, so, you know, they've they've moved away from freight. And what that means is there's not enough people to continue pushing freight, right? So what we're seeing are trains that are slowed down. We're seeing trains that are stopped. Um, There's a lot of data that's come from the Surface Transportation Board about the effects that this is having. Um, You know, truckers are moving as much freight as they can from the ports, um, but it's still causing a bottleneck because these containers aren't getting on trains. The trains aren't getting them to where they're supposed to be dropped off, right? So there's this whole ripple effect. So all these shipping that's coming from, you know, outside of the United States that's getting dropped off at the ports, there's not enough space at the ports to drop those containers off. So you've got lines of, you know, uh, uh, freight being just chilling off the coast of, you know, L.A., for example, um, because there's no space for it. They're seeing delays of anywhere from six to 12 days, and it's continuing to slow down. And it's causing such a problem that domestically, um, the freight can't be moved internally either. So, for example, with agriculture, you know, we have grain and and corn that cannot be uh, refined and then sent to where it needs to go. It's sitting where it's supposed to be picked up. You know, that's got a shelf life. You can't hang on to that forever. Right. You know what I mean? And so we're seeing this sort of ripple effect across all of the industry, both internally and, you know, how we're bringing in um, uh, freight from outside of the United States. And um, what it, it's pissing off the suppliers themselves, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because these rail carriers, one thing to note as well is that the rail infrastructure is privately owned. So the rail carriers own tracks of track, right? And they lease it out to each other to be able to push this stuff through. It's not like public roads, like interstates and stuff like that. Um, and uh, so what what's happening is that each of these rail carriers are, you know, contracting with certain shippers to be able to say, okay, we'll put it on our trains. We'll take it to where it needs to go. And these shippers are like, where is it? You know, why hasn't it landed where you said it would be? You know, it's delayed 12, 13, 14 hours every day for a period of seven days. You know, it's not getting to where it needs to go. We're upset. So they have gone to uh, the federal government and said, hello, uh, what's going on here? Can we figure this out? Because we are losing money now. It's not just the rail carriers losing money. We as the shippers are, are losing money, and it's happening across the board. There's no one that they can go to except maybe to try an independent trucking company that would be able to find space in in their schedule to do that. You know, 
So, um, you know, it's not it's not good. You know, is there any way to quantify the economic effects that this is having on it? on the economy you know is there have there been any any analysis saying that you know okay if the if the rails had been able to be on time then we would have we would have put you know i don't know half a trillion more dollars into the economy or something you know is there any analysis out there like that there's plenty of analysis about um, car loads and how far and how fast these car loads are making it across the United States. Um, you know, uh, as far as uh, actual numbers, I don't really have numbers in front of me to be able to, to talk very authoritatively about that. But you can imagine that a lot of money is being lost. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, you know, consumers are feeling the effect of that as well, right? Um, you were seeing that uh, as a result, in many ways, you can kind of see that part of the reason we're having an inflation problem, part of the reason that we're having such a high price point for things like food um, is because of these slowdowns across the entire system. And, you know, I don't want to lump it all on just the railroads because there's many different moving parts about right. this, but it plays a huge part in how we move goods from, you know, manufacturer to consumer and um it, you feel those ripple effects all the way across the board. You know what I mean? One thing I wanted to ask, you you mentioned it a second ago about even the suppliers are, are going to the federal government. Um, what has been the response, of, if there has been a response <laughs> at all from the federal government in terms of addressing what is a pretty major economic problem that's, that's affecting everyone from capital to labor? Um, Well, there was a bipartisan group of senators who sent a letter to, I believe, the Surface Transportation Board, if I'm remembering. Uh, Yeah, the board. They sent it to Board Chairman Marty Oberman. Um, They are. They're like these are senators that are representative of, uh, you know, a lot of Middle America states or states that have a lot of agricultural output or, um, you know, um, uh, ranchers and energy producers across the country who are hearing from their constituents their constituents being the various lobbies that uh, own these companies. Right. Right. Um, but they're saying, you know, this is not good. This is uh, really not cool. They're saying we are very concerned over the significant rail service disruptions. Uh, you know, we've gotten reports from all sorts of people um, and uh, there's no alternative to get their goods to market. And uh, in some instances, rail service problems have forced producers to completely stop production altogether for a period of time, right? And so there's all these lengthy delays. What are you going to do about it? You know, um, as a result, uh, like two years ago, the Biden administration put together a sort of like task force that is meant to address these problems because these bottlenecks and disruptions have been going on since before COVID, but certainly got worse when uh, workers sickened and died due to COVID. And, you know, that's a huge piece of this, right? We have to remember that the people making the supply chain move are human beings, right? And we lost a million people over the last two years. Um, And a lot of those people worked in these industries and helped to make this economy run, right? Um, And so, you know, the, this um, task force is doing its best to try and, and, address these problems but again it's it's bureaucratic red tape and administration how much 
can they really do in terms of pushing this forward? Right. Um, in many and ways, so you've been you, well. You, you've been you've been laying out a lot of the effects on the workers, on their families, on consumers, on suppliers. Let's look at the flip side just for a second and talk to us if, if you could lay out how the owners are doing of these oh, rail companies. They're doing great. They're doing huh. great. They're having a ball. Uh, Union Pacific and BNSF last year uh, in one of the quarters of 2021 posted over a billion dollars in profit. Both of these companies separately. We're talking billions and, and just of for dollars the, a year. You know, just for folks, just a little bit of economics 101 for people who may not know, you know, what does profit mean? What does revenue mean? Profit is the stuff that is left over after you have um, completed all of your expenses. It is your income minus your expenditures. So this is money that is left over after they pay everybody, after they pay um, their, you know, their CEOs, after they pay uh, all of their expenses, their rentals, their leases, and their employees, all of that. This is just money that is just left over after all the operations. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, let's see. BNSF Railway Company logged $1.7 billion in net income in fourth quarter 2021, a 13% increase from 2020's bottom line. And this is from uh, March 1st of this year, right? Uh, Union Pacific made 59% uh, more. They made 59%. Wow. And this is from 2021. So, they made, uh, let's see, $1.8 billion per quarter. Wow. Multiply that times $1.8 billion a quarter. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm not an expert at the economy or railroads, but I got a feeling like $1.7, $1.8 billion could probably hire some folks. Yeah. Uh, it could probably improve wages and benefits to make it a more attractive career. Just, right. just my, you know, amateur understanding. Yeah, I mean, that's always that's always what it comes down to, right? And you know, especially with these contract negotiations, every time that you talk to a worker who's in the middle of contract negotiations with a business like this, a corporate business, uh, we lost you again. Um, that makes millions or billions, billions yeah, of dollars. Mel, uh, just yeah, a second. We I lost saw you that. again. <laughs> <laughs> we lost you again, and you stopped at uh, contract negotiations with these companies. Yeah. Um, every time the workers are working to negotiate a contract with a corporation like this, they're not asking for much, you know, in terms of uh, in, in the grand scheme of things. Uh, they want a good work-life balance. They want solid benefits. They want they want people to stop slashing their pensions. They want health insurance that's going to cover their kids' dental. You know, they want all this kind of stuff that is basic necessities for living a good life. They want good right. wages, right? Uh, if you were to if you were to calculate how much that costs per year, it's a drop in the bucket for these companies, especially for rail carriers, because they do make billions of dollars um, and you know, they, they, where does it go? Warren Buffett's bank account? You know, we're talking about 150,000, 115,000 workers across the, the rails themselves who are being ground into dust because 
of these various cost-cutting measures. And they look at these CEOs and these billionaires who own these railroads who are operating, you know, all of these like horizontal monopolies across various industries where if they lose money in one, it's not going to change how much money they make in another. And they see this and they look at, you know, they see these contract negotiations and they see what these corporations are offering them. And it's like getting punched in the face repeatedly and then being asked to say thank you, you know, like right. that. It's insane to me. Um, and it's, you know, we can, it's easy to see this with the railroads um, because of the disparity, how big that jump is, you know, billions of dollars and you're trying to take away my ability to safely operate a train because you want to make more. You know, uh, Jeff Kurtz in his speech at the rally said something like, um, you know, they've squeezed all the blood they can out of us and they wanted to keep squeezing more and we have nothing mm-hmm. left to give them. You know, uh, another rail worker called the money that they make blood money, you know, mm. because they are really not doing well. They're overwhelmed. They're overworked. They're not paid enough. They're not given the chance to really rest and and recover after shifts that can last anywhere from 12 to 14 hours, you know. And at every turn, these managers, these corporations are doing whatever they can to um, punish the workforce for things that are out of their control, like medical emergencies or surprises in, in scheduling or what have you, you know. Right, like, what are you right. supposed to do? How do you plan for an emergency? That's not what an emergency is, you know. And just last week, we got um, we got news that there were there were a couple of updates since the article about contract negotiations. The first thing was that uh, the Brotherhood of uh, Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen, I believe, is the union that voted to authorize a strike. Um, and, and it's really convoluted the way that they do that. And I think that there was a couple more votes that had to happen or that would have had to happen. Um, but but there there was a vote made in which one of the train unions said their members were like, yes, we, we would like to open the avenue towards striking. And the president convened a presidential emergency board or something, which further delays their ability to strike legally. Talk yeah. to us about the contract negotiations up to this point and then what the presidential emergency board does and and means. Yeah. So the contract negotiations uh, stalled out over about two years. And um, the thing about the railroads is it's governed by something called the rail labor act, railway labor act, if I remember properly. Um, and, And essentially what that legislation is, is a way to try and mitigate the, very disastrous effects of a long-term stoppage. Uh, so, you know, uh, rail workers don't have similar, uh, same recourse to uh, forcing negotiations forward as other plants governed by unions might. Say, for example, Kellogg's, once the contract's up, you can walk off the job and you can stay off the job on strike for as long as necessary in order to get a contract, right? Uh, if you shut down the railroads, then your economy can collapse, which, you know, is pretty good fucking leverage. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but uh, in terms of national defense and all of these other reasons, they, you can't just walk off the job when your contract expires. So for the last almost three years, 
railway workers have been um, working every day uh, uh, without a contract, essentially. The negotiations stalled out over the last two years. And then in, I think, like March or May, they brought it before the National Mediation Board, which is the sort of outside entity that is supposed to help them uh, figure out a way forward with the negotiations. Um, they step in, they try and mediate. If the process is not use, uh, you know, is not uh, productive or fruitful, and both sides can't come to an agreement uh, that they can then take back to the rank and file to ratify. Then what happens is the National Mediation Board says, we're at an impasse. Okay, now we've got, we're going to activate these provisions in the RLA and we're going to move forward with it. And what that looks like is a series of like cooling off periods where both sides walk away from the table um, and they try and come forward with arbitration ideas or recommendations that maybe, you know, both sides can agree on. We just are at the like last two days of the first 30-day cooling-off period where during this time, in order to push forward negotiations, the current administration can appoint what's called the Presidential uh, 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 Emergency Board. And usually these are like skilled arbitrators and negotiators who come in. Um, and they will look at some of the recommendations that the NMB has suggested um, whether that be arbitration, whether that be specific provisions in the contract, things like that. Um, and then they will essentially submit a, a non-binding recommendation for a contract at the end. I think it's a 30-day period. Um, so during that time, at any point, either side can reject this. So in the first 30 days, uh, they offered arbitration. The unions rejected that because they don't want to enter into arbitration because then that necessarily means that the rank and file don't have the ability to vote on and ratify a contract, if I'm remembering correctly. So we were two days away from a national rail shutdown when the Biden administration appointed the board yesterday. Goes into effect on the 18th. And then the board will, uh, you know, talk to both sides get both sides, you know, quote unquote, wish lists or where the negotiations are, the various places where they've stalled out. They will offer a non-binding contract uh, recommendation, essentially. And then one or both sides can then um, either accept it and send it to uh, the union to ratify or uh, not accept it, um, if I'm remembering this correctly, because this is it comes in a like stages, right? Um, and then uh, let me see. Let me get this information totally correct. Um, so, yeah. So um, they collect evidence. They offer their re uh, recommendations, and then they uh, once they offer their recommendations, both sides have another thirty days to mull it over. And if one or both sides reject it, which uh, you know, it, depending on who you talk to. Um, I think a lot of folks are not particularly prepared to accept what the PEB might recommend because oftentimes it's not perfect and it, it requires one or both sides to make concessions that maybe were like hard lines at the beginning of all of this. And if that's the case, then uh, the door is open for the rail carriers to lock out their workers or for the unions to strike. Um, 
if the unions strike, then what happens is, generally speaking, uh, the federal government, the legislative body of the federal government will step in and create emergency legislation that says, okay, here's your contract, because we can't have these railways shut down for even six hours. You know, a 24 or 48 hour strike would paralyze the economy in a way that would be, um, I don't want to say catastrophic because that's kind of alarmist, but it is a big deal. It's a big deal. And so what is your, uh, I guess the, the final question that I, the, that I would have is what is, um, I, I would like you to play um, future seeing crystal ball looking into psychic. <laughs> uh, what, what is, what is going to happen in your professional opinion? Um, in terms of, sorry, you cut out a little bit there. So yeah, uh, yeah, I, I was just asking, what what is it that you think is going to happen? Um, wh- what do you think is the most likely thing to happen? Do you think that we're headed towards a strike? Do you think that we're headed towards the companies buckling before they get to a strike and and giving into some of their demands? Do you think that it's it, that we're looking at um, uh, the government or the companies somehow forcing the workers to heal? Um, what do you think is the most likely? Um, you know, it's kind of up in the air. Um, we are in the middle of midterm elections. Uh, so it's very unusual that this would get this far. Oftentimes when you're in the middle of midterms, legislators don't really want to wade into something like this. And I think the last time this happened was like the mid late nineties. Um, and ultimately what happened is I think that the they averted a, a lockout, a strike, and ratified a contract. Um, well, it's weird. I'm not sure what's going to happen. It really depends on, you know, the, the political climate over the next 60 days and uh, how the rank and file feel. But it sounds to me like just based on the messaging coming from Smart TD and BLAT and the various uh, members of the bargaining committee is that, you know, they want to break this stalemate but they're not going to back down from what they're asking for. And if it necessitates a strike or it necessitates pushing this all the way to the logical end of the RLA, which is, uh, you know, um, legislation, um, then they're going to do that because they're trying really hard to go to bat for their workers because conditions have gotten that bad, you know. Um, And one thing to note is if there is a legislation that is passed – uh, apparently, you know, based on the research that I did for this article, the, the way to go forward is that the legislation that's adopted is likely going to be the recommendations that the PEB makes in the first place. So, mm-hmm. you know, once it gets to that point, you know, that's it. They, that's the contract for the next three years or what have you. Um, and so the hopefully what happens is that there is a way to break this stalemate. And that, um, you know, union workers can uh, ratify a contract that they are satisfied with. But it remains to be seen what's going to happen. I mean, it's a pretty thorny issue. Um, And surely, uh, surely Democrats in Congress would not pass a law forcing these workers to take a bad contract. I mean, surely not. Hmm. Yeah, about that. Um, you know, I, I don't mean, just have, even hey, as, like, it, it just as a political, yes, it's it, an op- it's an opportunity for the Democrats who control the White House, who control Congress, to come out on the side of workers at basically no cost. Like, who's the person that would be harmed by this? Oh, the the rail billionaires. Like, who cares? 
Well, but, you know, it's one of those things where, like, when you're in the middle of a re-election campaign, you really don't want to be focused on this, right? Um, right. And it can can engender some, some, you know, you're not trying to alienate potentially uh, not, you know, anti-union voters or what have you. You know what I mean? It just becomes this weird political situation uh, when the reality is, is like, once again, it's, it's about the rank and file workers. It's about these workers who are being ground to dust every day who are tired and who are, you know, experiencing the worst working conditions that I've ever heard from certain, you know, from, from workers in the last year and a half, like fucked up shit. And, um, you know, they deserve to have some relief, you know, and they deserve the solidarity that they've been getting over the last couple of months as we've been pushing the story further and further outwards, you know, um, hopefully it is a contract that folks can be satisfied with. Um, and hopefully the, you know, the, the board that is appointed uh, is full of individuals who are able to kind of really kind of dial in on what the workers are asking for and present recommendations that are going to be useful. Right. right. But again, you're coming up against billion dollar companies that are perfectly fine with dragging this out as long as possible because they have the money and the resources to do so. You know, right. to the detriment of the entire fucking economy. But, you know, right. yeah. I, I, and I think this is one of those situations where, you know, I, I think from my perspective as a unionist, I never want to see the government getting involved. I think that usually indicates that there's been a breakdown. Right. Uh, but in this case, because of the unique legal restrictions on railways and just the, the general uh, leverage point it plays in, in the economy there is an opportunity for federal force to be used on the side of workers and to change at, to at least not be used on the side of bosses right and and, <laughs> and, and and i think there's also a compelling political story there to talk mm-hmm. about workers who are being ground into dust and that's part of the reason why you're paying more prices higher prices at the grocery stores because right. they're screwing these people over while you're getting screwed too right. And it's it's time, an, it, it would be something about it. Right? It would, yeah, it would be an inflation attacking measure. You know, we're, we're fighting inflation. We're fighting for you by fighting inflation, um, by f- making these rail companies, you know, pay their workers so, so that so that they can continue. Right. Um, you know, so I could see Bernie so. giving this speech, but, yeah. I, you know, we'll see. <laughs> whether we'll, or not anyone else. We'll see what um, approaches it in that way. We'll we'll see what happens. But, but yeah. I really yeah. I really appreciate your reporting on this because it is very complex and complicated. And I liked your um, your comparison of the supply chain to the cardiovascular system of a human mm-hmm. being. I, I thought that was really good and mm-hmm. uh, helped me to understand it. So I just you know want to encourage folks to read your piece uh, with the Real News Network. Thank you. And definitely stay tuned on this because it is something that could have far reaching effects on certainly these workers who deserve our love and solidarity, uh, yep. but really everyone who's participating in the economy. Right. The article and- is corporate billionaires are wrecking the supply chain. Just look at the railroads. The author is Mel Beer. You can find her on Twitter and follow her work and her reporting as this issue uh, continues. Her Twitter handle is Mel underscore Beer, M-E-L underscore B-U-E-R. Make sure you check her out. Uh, Mel, thank you for talking to us. I appreciate it. Yeah, anytime. Thanks for having me on again. It's always a good conversation. Thank you. Thanks. See ya. All right, folks. Uh, 
do y'all watch this is resolute uh, this is revolution from strom mccallan in the chat um i have seen it before it's uh um but not a whole lot. I don't watch it a whole lot. Um, next up, we are go- we are going to be playing our conversation with the Scottsboro Starbucks Workers United Organizing Committee. And folks, uh, it is a really good conversation. Um, I am whoa, that's crazy in the YouTube. <laughs> um, and I am really excited. Um, that was probably one of my favorite conversations that we've had uh, with the Starbucks uh, Workers Organizing Committee down in Scottsboro. And we are going to play you out on that interview. So uh, folks, thanks for listening to us. And here is our interview with those folks from Scottsboro. So we have got a bunch of people from the Scottsboro Starbucks location that are on the organizing committee of the Scottsboro Starbucks Workers United. We have Emma Ellison and Sierra Moore. And then all in a room together, we've got Garrett Ellison, Ava Holcomb, Caitlin Knowles, and Corey Bean. Everybody, thank you so much for being on the Valley Labor Report. Thank you for having yeah, us. We appreciate you. it. Absolutely. I, I'm incredibly excited to have all of y'all here. Uh, so let's just go through some introductions. Uh, you know, are you from here? Um, how did you get started working at Starbucks? And, you know, so, uh, so, some background about working at Starbucks. Maybe how long you've been there. How do you like the job? What kind of stuff do you do? Stuff like that. Uh, and we'll start off with Emma. Um, so I'm Emma Ellison. I'm currently a college student at NACC. I started working at Starbucks in Scottsboro. Well, not really in Scottsboro. I started at Gunnersville, but it was around September 7th. And the reason I started at Starbucks was because I was working a 725 job and I needed a better job. So I started working. At- we may have lost Emma. That's all- about me. <laughs> <laughs> there she goes. I started in cyber warfare now. <laughs> Starbucks warfare now. is attacking. This, yeah, the, the Starbucks union busting is relentless and they are yeah. silencing our <laughs> sister Emma. Uh, so Boys. while we wait for the censors to uh, relieve her, we'll go to um, we'll go to Sierra. Hey, so I am Sierra. Um, I started at Starbucks in July of last year, June, July. I don't know exactly when, um, but I worked at the Gunnersville store um, as a barista, had to leave because I wasn't making enough money, um, went down to just like a day a week, working Sundays only, six days a week at a factory. And then uh, my only off day I spent at Starbucks until the manager over there was like, Hey, I have a shift position available for you at this new store if you're interested. And I was like, um, yeah, of course I am. Cause I'll be making a lot more money. And so, um, I became a shift over here and have been with Scott's first since it opened. So since like October. So awesome. yeah. Yeah. It sounds like a lot of y'all are from Scottsboro. Um, if any of y'all know anybody that work at Jamocha's, um, you should get them in touch with me because I have a bit of a personal vendetta against uh, the owners there, and I would love to unionize them. <laughs> but... There's a, wait, Jamoka's like Gunnersville, Boaz, Albertville? Yes. Yeah. Oh, I do, actually. <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm and from they only pay their workers 725 I know. I know. 
<laughs> like I, I saw them advertising for a position the other day, and it was like seven twenty five plus tips. And the day after that, they advertise that they're going to be raising their prices, uh, mm. <laughs> even though they're yeah. still only paying their workers minimum wage. Yeah. Yep, it's pretty wild. Uh, so let's go to uh, Garrett. Hey, I'm Garrett Ellison. Um, I started at Starbucks in September, August area. Um, I started off as a barista. I went to Starbucks because I had previously went to Starbucks as like a customer and really liked the environment. And it seemed like they portrayed this idea of their partners were treated well. It was very inclusive. So I was like, I might as well get onto it because I was working at a 725 job and was not getting paid to be able to function in society with 725. So um, I went there and started there. It started out good. We went to Gunnersville. It was very good. We had enough people on the floor to run the store. Mm -hmm. Um, Everything was getting done. It was outstanding. I was super excited for our store to open in Scottsboro. And we went to Scottsboro and opened and... I felt like we were that SpongeBob meme where we were just sitting there and fires all around us. And it's been like that ever since. So we decided to take matters into our own hands. So, yeah. Ava? Oh, yes. So I'm Ava Holcomb. I started working at Starbucks in November of last year. And I got the job because of Emma and Garrett. They talked about how much they loved it and how great it was at Gunnersville. So I was like, oh my gosh, I'll apply. And I got an interview and I got hired on the spot. And little did I know that the reason I got hired on the spot is because it was such a dumpster fire that they were taking. <laughs> yeah. But I've worked, I've been working there a good while now. I've moved up to barista trainer recently. But, you know, we're all just, I'm just like everybody else trying to make it through the like I said, the dumpster fire that's going on right now. Caitlin. Hi, I'm Caitlin. Um, I've been working for Starbucks. My first day was August 9th of last year. I started as a shift supervisor and I came to Starbucks because I had to abruptly quit my previous job and my sister had actually put in my application for me. Um, because I had been unemployed and was really struggling with money. And whenever I started Starbucks, everything was great. I was making great paychecks until a few months ago. (laughs) (laughs) Gotcha. And Corey, last but not least. Here, we'll kind of turn the screen for him. So I started um, (laughs) November of last year. I came mostly for like the dental insurance, but I also grew up like reading the Harry Potter books inside of Starbucks cafe. Like every time a book would come out, I'd buy it. Go mm-hmm. sit in a cafe. I kind of wanted to work somewhere that had that atmosphere to it. And um, it did at the beginning, but it very quickly deteriorated. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah. And, and now, it for most of y'all, I think your accents kind of give you away, but is there anybody that's not from around here? Oh, no. Nope. I mean, I mean uh, I'll say... I'm from Huntsville, <laughs> so my right. accent comes and goes. <laughs> I'm born right here, but I've lived in Colorado and Seattle. I've up in New York for a bit, so I've been kind of around everywhere. But you said you were born here in Alabama? I was born in Texas. Texas. Uh, but I've up here. Gotcha. Well, so, you know, 
all of y'all are from Alabama, and Corey, you're from the South. Uh, you know, and, and so what are you doing getting mixed up in all this, uh, you know, unionism and stuff? You're supposed to be thankful to your boss and, and you know, <laughs> like, do everything that he says and not complain and put your head down and go to church on Sunday morning. Like, what's going on here? Well, um, actually, we decided, we like, we were just like talking one day and we were like, what if we just unionized? And like, we kind of joked about it because we were like, we might as well, you know, me personally, um, and Emma included, our father is a part of the IBEW, and we know that they have, like, helped him out through the union, um, especially during during the recession in 2008, when the tor- tornadoes came through in uh, 2014. Uh, they really showed support, and, they, and their benefits are outstanding. They really fought for the people that work, and we were just like, why don't we do it? So we had this one time where... Corey got in touch with um, a food industry union and we were like, okay, but we never really heard anything. They kind of pulled me around. Yeah. 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 And um, it just like never really came through. And then uh, our store actually, our store manager actually caught wind of us unionizing. So they shut down everything. Like they had these one-on-one meetings with us, like threatened us, threatened our benefits, like threatened people transferring, like, it was a real deal and everyone was like, oh my goodness. But like, it's, we stood strong and then we got in touch with Starbucks Workers United and they've been outstanding, giving us information, uh, being supportive. It's been great. And then we went public and we're here today. So, mm-hmm. wow. Well, so that's interesting. Garrett and Emma, y'all have, uh, your dad is in the IBEW. Could you talk to us about, um, you know, gr- did that play a big part in y'all's life growing up? Yes, yeah. it played a very huge part. Like like Garrett was saying, like when the tornadoes hit and I do believe twenty twelve, like all of his friends from work like banded together and gave him like their overtime so he could stop and help our community in need. Like they donated tons of food, tons of money, a tent so we could like house all the people who had lost their homes and was just going through a rough time. And they gave him all his their hours, like their extra hours and sick leave, so he could go around and fix people's electricity and get their houses back up and running. So it's been a really huge part in our life. The reason we have great insurance is because of his union, union job and everything like that. So it's really been so, such a great helpful thing for us. That that that's really awesome, and I, I and I think that's you know one of the best ways to build the movement is to be a part of it and to show people the things that that it does for folks, and I think that's a really really good uh, testimony, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so Ava and Caitlin, what about y'all? What how, how did y'all feel when uh, Garrett and Emma and, and and the others maybe started talking about this and asking y'all about it? Well, I mean, I'm, I would say at least a little bit closer to Emma and Garrett than the others. So I kind of caught wind of it pretty early and I was all for it. I mean, I am obviously personally pro-union and I have been for a while, but as soon as I heard that like my store that I work at is, this is happening, I began to do more research on it and learn more about it. And, you know, I talked to people about it. I talked to people who were anti and I talked to people that were pro to kind of solidify my own opinion. And just through my own research and stuff like that, I realized that I think that this would be super great for our store and for Starbucks as a company. 
you know, and I think it's very progressive and I think it'll further, you know, our quality, our quality of life in general so much that I was like, yeah, obviously I'm for that. What was it that made you initially pro-union? You know, like you you said you came into it with a initial inclination to be pro-union. What? Wh- why was that? Well, I mean, immediately, it's kind of because, like, of my mom a little bit, to be honest, because she is more so pro. But just everything that I've known about unions and what they stand for is what I stand for. So I was like, you know, I'm pro-union because – I don't see how you could hear about something that is better for workers and is better for their life and be like, no, I don't want that. Is your aunt in a union? Huh? Is your aunt in a union? My uncle. Yeah. They're. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. You're related to (laughs) that. I forgot. (laughs) Uh, Caitlin, what about you? What what did you think about when, uh, when all this talk started? So I honestly did not know that much about unions. I was not very informed. Mm-hmm. So I didn't really know what to think at first. But then as I saw um, the situation in our store getting worse, for example, my main thing was the cut of hours. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was talking to Garrett one night about it. And um, he mentioned the plans of unionizing. And I was like, that, that <laughs> seems like a good idea, actually. And I had him send me some information and some pamphlets. And I looked over all that. I'm like, I think this could be good for us because, cool. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah. And I was like, I mean, if it makes where I spend practically every single day, better than I'm for it. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, and Corey, what about you? I was immediately on board. I mean, I kind of started the first little one that fizzled out, mm-hmm. but my philosophy has always been if, if it's a publicly traded company, their main priority is going to be keeping like stocks up and making money for investors. And people tend uh, like the workers tend to be the ones who get the short end of the stick there. So I've always been like pro pro union because I feel like if they can capitalize off of like any negativity or like bad pay for us and bad work conditions, anything to save them a buck, you know, they're gonna do it. I've just never never really trusted them. Hmm. Yeah, I I mean I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, the ability to collectively bargain over the you know the people who want to take more of the value that you create for themselves as opposed to give it back to you, you know, having that, uh, it, it definitely balances the power, so to speak. But Ava, I'm interested in, in, you know, you and, and somebody else mentioned that you started working there because it was a better opportunity because the other opportunity was a minimum wage, $7.25 job. And that is... It's amazing to me that there are still people in Alabama working for $7 an hour. Um, I couldn't imagine having to do that. Uh, It's just, it's crazy. And so obviously the minimum wage is higher at Starbucks. And so I can just hear the people, um, you know, listening to us that may be skeptical. They're Mm -hmm. like, 
you're making more than you would before. Why would you... Why do you hate Starbucks? Why don't you just go work some somewhere else? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I could add to that, actually. We had um, some people... That's kind of been a lot of kind of what people have said because people around here, that's kind of what they go to to say. But, I mean, the thing with that, I mean, personally, like I came from a 725 job mm-hmm. and I was going to school and I was having to pay for it myself. And good thing I had scholarships to help mm-hmm. with that. And But some people aren't fortunate enough to have scholarships. Mm-hmm. So even when, like now, where I'm at now in my life, where I'm getting ready to move out of my um my parents' house to go move by, like with um, some roommates mm-hmm. and just making $12 is really pushing it because mm-hmm. I have to pay for all that. I have to pay for insurance. Now I have to, like, I'm going to be paying for utilities um, and schooling. So even with just $12, it's still hard to function in the state. So, yeah, I would add that the cost of living has increased like far far above like the, the pay that we receive and yeah companies they uh, report record profits across the board and mm-hmm. that's been pretty consistent mm-hmm. so yeah we do make more than like a 725 an hour job but i always said like you know if your pile of crap is prettier than their pile of crap doesn't make your pile of crap good mm-hmm. yeah. yeah i think it's very ignorant of people to and I mean, ignorance is a strong word to tell somebody they're ignorant, but to see someone making $12 an hour when you know that they could be making seven twenty-five and saying, well, you should be happy where you're at because you could be there. Like Corey said, you know, our pile of crap isn't much prettier. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's honestly disheartening to hear people so mad about someone fighting for a better life because mm-hmm. it's like, you know, we're not just doing it for us. We're doing it for the future of all workers. It doesn't have to stop at Starbucks. You yeah. know, it's it's for everybody. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and, you know, I think that unionizing at these big brand places uh, like Starbucks and like Amazon, I think it can help shift the message and show people that, it's possible at your workplace too, but mm-hmm. I, I'm I'm interested in in that that you said that there's. It's weird how people would be so mad about folks trying to make their lives better. Have y'all faced a lot of pushback from the community? Not. There's been their days, but I will say that our, like we've come through and our community has been really supportive. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm very happy about that. Like I love my community. I've, I've grown up in it. Yeah. And we were kind of iffy about it. Like I know the partners at our store were kind of a little scared because they were afraid the community would kind of be back like a, a t- against us, I guess you could say, but they've really kind of showed support. And um, we've really had some customers come through and like talk to us about it and be like, we're, like, we're so proud of you. And like, I'll be like, how's your day? And they'll ask me how mine is. And I'll be like, I'm ready to unionize. And they'll be like, we're so proud of you. But we've, I mean, we've had a lot of community support. I mean, we've had yeah. a few that have kind of been a little iffy, but, other than that, the good outweigh the bad. So more, more on Facebook, I think. Oh like yeah, had, the majority mm-hmm. that we hear is on Facebook, and it's mm-hmm. I would say eight times out of ten, it's about the fact that oh my gosh, if y'all start making more, then the prices are going to be so high 
Starbucks is going <laughs> to shut down forever and I won't be able to have my caramel ribbon French cappuccino. And what's funny, so, like, I wish, like, people could understand, like, Starbucks has raised their prices, like, just while I've been there, I think, two or three times. Yes. And they're starting to charge for, like, blending a drink. Like, if you blend a drink, you get charged 50 cents for mm-hmm. it. So it's kind of like they're making all this money and we haven't seen anything. Like, we were supposed mm-hmm. to get a raise, like, a $15 raise. Yeah, to, they originally said it was going to be in June. Yeah. yeah. Then. And that was they the, said it was in August. Yeah, mm-hmm. that was the second time they pushed it back because we were supposed to get it, I think, the beginning of this year. But they pushed it back or something on, along those lines. I think they pushed it back twice. So. And I'm not going to roll again. Yeah, and if I'm sure they oh, they better not, Lord have mercy. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I think they won't push it back again because there's been such a strong union yeah. effort in Starbucks that they're like, oh, we can't keep continuing to treat them horribly. We actually have to do something, even though they're still going to retaliate against unions. I, I think they're starting to see that they're going to have to start treating partners like partners, and mm-hmm. instead of the very short end of the stick where we're all holding on for dear life, so. Mm-hmm. How how's the response been um, internally? Uh, I, obviously, y'all have a lot of people just on this call, and you know there's people that are staffing there, so it's it seems like it, it's it's pretty good. But uh, you know how how is the vote looking? Do you feel pretty good about winning the election? Um, and and what kind of conversations have y'all been having to change minds? Mm-hmm. So um, I feel very confident in our partners. Um, our partners all experience the way Starbucks has been treating us. I feel like they're all really coming to realize that the only way for us to make it better is by doing it ourselves, ourselves because Starbucks has shown time and time again, that they do not care about partners. Um, we've had many instances where it's shown that behind the scenes and um, it's really shown that we have to stand together and, do it our own, our own selves. So we, it's really been like that. Once they've seen like all the stuff that we've done, like before we unionized, there was an instance with um, Sierra and like the store decided to write up a bunch of the partners for following protocol. And they tried to get in touch with the store manager, the store manager wouldn't answer. So then they decided to write everyone up that was involved. That shouldn't have been written up for, absolutely no reason and we all came together that day and showed up at the store and was like showed support to the partners and then we all walked out together but this was like during the time we were talking about unionizing and then once people saw that they realized that hey we we are powerful together and it's really kind of going through that so yeah i would also add go ahead sorry no 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 you go ahead i was just gonna say that i would add that most i would say in the beginning, most of the partners who were skeptical, it was because they were scared. That, yeah, so. they were scared that they were going to lose their benefits. We were told that we could possibly not get our raise. Mm-hmm. So a lot of partners were like, well, you know, there's no point in me being here if I'm going to be a part of a union, but it's going to be worse for me. Mm-hmm. And at, the, at this point, I would say that we've explained Seemed to most the of them. We Yes, we've explained to people. We, you know, talked with them. We've got them involved. So it's a lot better now. Y'all's store closed um, a couple of weeks ago or, 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 or maybe last week for an anti-union meeting. Um, talk to us about that. So it was 
not just our store, actually. It was, I know for a fact that Gunnersville, their store closed down for meetings as well. But I would say our store, it was a little bit more serious because they knew what they were going up against. So we actually had um, Tina. Uh, she was there. I think she, um, if Sierra might want to add resource. to this, uh, partner resource. Uh, we had Erica, our district manager. We had Tim, our interim store manager. And we had another person, Ben. ben I don't, don't know. He's over Montgomery or something. He really didn't speak. He was just kind of this omnipotent figure. But, that was like, ben actually only spoke. I wouldn't doubt if they only brought him in there because he had a bad experience with the union. The only time I heard him speak. Nothing against this man. I don't know anything about him. But the only thing that I heard him say was his negative experience with a union that he worked with many, many years before. Mm-hmm. Which, I, there are instances where very, what Starbucks has used to de-unionize or union bust, it was an instance that was towards that. So we're kind of like, was that actually really true? Because how does that line up with what Starbucks is saying, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we would love, like, we're, we would love to reach out to the unions that they were a part of to see if they could give us some info because, like, the way that they exaggerated that, there has to be some sort of documentation of instances like that. So, if it's true or not, I mean, we're just kind of like, that's weird how it's coincidentally lined up with how, what Starbucks is saying a union will do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they, they insinuated that us on the committee were getting paid like $30 an hour. Yeah. 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 I, I wish. So they were saying like outlandish things like that. So it, it didn't lend, lend a lot of credibility to, uh, to the whole anti-union story he gave. Mm-hmm. Seems like it could all have been made up. Oh, wow. Yeah. They were implying that y'all were getting paid $30 an hour by the union. They recorded too. Yeah. Tina, Tina was like, we confronted her about it because we were all outside and we were all talking to each other about mm-hmm. who was saying what. And during my meeting, we confronted Tina and we were like, so we heard that y'all were telling people we're getting paid $30 an hour. Like, where is that? You know, yes, I'm not saying her it. response was, well, you could be lying. She goes, yeah. actually, we actually never said that. And also, um, she goes, no, but union partners have been getting paid by unions to go to other store and unionize. And I was like, that's not what you tell everybody else. That's a different thing. That's like a whole nother, that's a whole nother can of worms. Mm-hmm. We're not getting paid extra for doing this. We're doing this out of the, yeah. I mean, especially Gary, out of the goodness of his heart, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And I would like to say that they really like misinformed partners. Like mm-hmm. they would like use instances like that. And then when someone brought it back up, they would change the story. Like mm-hmm. they use like, uh, like this, during the contract, they would be like, well, during this, like they could bring in this clause to affect transfer rights and that happened in one meeting and then the other meeting it was like well this could affect seniority pay and we were like what like their story wasn't adding up and they just continued you could tell that they were getting upset with us because we were so like okay this is all like you're like pretty much just lying and missing misinforming our partners and like emma and um i know ava was in the last meeting where Tina actually, yeah, she actually got upset and raised her voice at partners and started to say, and like, I know Emma and Ava could probably add to that where she raised her voice and was like super upset. And it's kind of a shame to see that someone who makes what, like six figures or three figures and like, she's an adult. Yeah. And like, she's yelling at kids, adults. And we're like, I would like to chime in and attest that she did raise her voice and yell at me. 
when yeah. I was um, confronting her about how she can say that Starbucks accommodates their partners when they don't consider break rooms for their partners when they build their stores. She told me from her Tina's mouth that they do not build any break rooms for their employees. And I was asking her that, how is it partner accommodating when partners are choosing between food and rent for that month? And she yelled and raised her voice at me. And then she was, she was very rude, very, very rude. It was, it was just really shocking because it is confirmed. She makes 300 K a year and she Mm. was yelling at teenagers. Yeah. Yelling at people who, I mean, can't pay rent. And it really is a shame because like the part, the other members that were sitting there, like Tim, Erica, and Ben that were sitting there and they were saying that we're partner oriented, but let something like that happen just shows mm-hmm. that they do not care about us. So it's just horrible. There was a lot of punching down and strawman arguments if you're familiar with those. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of punching down and mm-hmm. strawman argument. Yeah, well the you know we could even stipulate, I think, that this guy's story is true and it happened and it even happened in the exact exaggerated way that he's saying it did and it still doesn't invalidate the idea that you should unionize uh and i've got a great story exactly along those lines in my family my uncle was a chief steward in the teamsters um in in huntsville at ups and he felt like the union did him wrong um and didn't represent him when he was injured on the job and, and so from him talking about that, a lot of my family got the idea that he was now anti-union. I talked mm-hmm. to him early, like a couple of months ago, and he was talking about how he didn't understand why the Amazon people wouldn't vote yes for the union, like they should absolutely do it. And I was like, I thought you were anti-union. And he was like, mm-hmm. no, man, they screwed me over, but I wouldn't have retired in 2002 making uh, $35 an hour if it wasn't for the union. I wouldn't have had health care without the union. I wouldn't have had my leave without the union. Like, yeah, they did one bad thing. This one guy did one bad thing, but unions are good. And, yeah. <laughs> and you know, all these things that you're talking about, like, oh, this seniority clause was worded weird or this transfer clause was worded weird. And it's like, well, who writes the contracts? It's the workers. When you have a union contract, y'all are the ones that are going to be able to bargain your contract and ratify. You will be the ones to approve the language that you work under. And so, you know, maybe this other union had a crappy transfer clause. That doesn't matter at all. Yeah, they were using this, like, they were saying that, well, this union, I'm, and we were like, well, is it, like, is it Starbucks United? Because, like, I mean, Howard Schultz said that he's not even going to go, like, to the bargaining table. Like, so, I mean, it's very, they were very wishy-washy and contradicted themselves. And, like, when I confronted, like, Tina was talking about that, I was like, we're voting on the clause. Like, we're voting on the contract. And she was like, yes. And I'm like, and she would try to dissuade it to say, well, they could, but, I'm not, but we wouldn't vote. Literally. We wouldn't vote for that if that happened. Like, Because <laughs> we have the means to read the contract. She, she wasn't connecting what you were saying. Yeah. No, absolutely like, not. I yeah. know. I was like, are you listening? <laughs> yeah. Open your ears. <laughs> it's like if I was to say, yeah, my cousin got into a car wreck and broke his arm. No one should ever drive a car ever again because my cousin mm-hmm. had a wreck. That's ridiculous. Yeah. In my interview, they, they started out doing that, and they shifted to just kind of, like, trying to vilify anybody on the committee. Um, so they would say stuff like, yeah, you may want this, but ultimately it'll be up to, like, it'll two or three people in the committee. Um, 
Did they tell so you they, who votes for the committee? No, no, no they did not. Obviously. Okay. Why would they? That, that would be pro-union. What are you talking that, about? That would be horrible. That's funny. Yeah, that that that's incredible. Yeah, it was, and like I, we have a a lot more other retaliation stories, like of what they've done. But like uh, some of it's like serious, and like so we, those people have yet to come forward about or wanting to go public about that. So we're mm-hmm. kind of letting those Keep partners wait till they feel comfortable about coming forward about that situation. So. Yeah. Sure, absolutely, and and feel free to. If you want to interject and, and tell us a story, even if it's off topic, um, you know about this, feel free to jump in and say like, "Oh, hey, I just thought of, uh, just thought about this." But um, how has the communication bet- been between y'all and Birmingham? Because right now, y'all are the only two stores that are public um, with the unionizing uh, with the unionization campaign. They just won their election uh, last month, I think, twenty seven to one. Um, so. How have y'all, uh, how's the communication been between y'all? So actually when we went um, public and we, the, that was when we made our Twitter account and stuff and they actually uh, DM'd us and they were like, Hey, we're super like, so glad they all did this. We're rooting from Birmingham. Uh, and then they started reaching out to us, like making sure we had stuff. And then we started, we actually got off a meeting with um, one of their members from Birmingham Sunday. Uh, Sunday? Yeah. So we, and they've been helping us uh, kind of go through the process mm-hmm. as well as Starbucks Workers United and uh, DSA from Birmingham um, and also Huntsville as well. And they've really been um, helping support us and give us information that we need to help our movement go strong. So they are so kind yes, to us. They've helped us so much. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, I, I've been really impressed with the Birmingham folks. Um, really enjoy talking to them. And, uh, yeah, they seem like they're real um, real knowledgeable and real active. And I've been really impressed with the uh, Birmingham DSA people. Um, yeah, they've been really right. helpful. Yes, they actually came up to our store um, one day and just sat there and talked to partners and they had a drink and we had like a coffee mm-hmm. and um, <laughs> not an alcoholic, <laughs> yeah, like but they did, um, they did, they yeah, did, yeah, only, um, but they did come and like they got out some like um, little blank sheets of paper and wrote some nice supportive um, words, um, pro union stuff. And then this was actually before our uh, meeting that they shut down the store to union but and um, they, um, Tina, Erica, Tim, um, and Ben, and probably Nas as well, they tore them down. They tore down those things that the community and, like, they had put up. And we were all like, wow, like, <laughs> that's kind of sad, you know. Mm-hmm. But. How did, so it, that was, I remember that, that was really early in the campaign, like almost right after you announced. And so presumably at this time you had some people that were still, kind of on the fence or generally anti-union how did they react to this group of socialists from Birmingham <laughs> putting stuff up on their putting stuff up on their board and then also management taking the stuff that they put up on the board down I mean I think that they felt like that someone was going to get in trouble yeah uh, they felt like oh my goodness like they're gonna get fired or they're gonna be retaliated against mm-hmm. and they were like 
oh my goodness and then that kind of helped aid like them kind of I guess I go through but like I really think that the big thing was was they're going to lose benefits they're going to lose that pay raise and um really I just really they thought that they would that the union would kind of leave them behind and put them in the back burner but really I think I've been trying to and other committee members and other partner pro-union partners have just been trying to be like hey like we want you there like we care about you that's the only that's the job of a union is to represent its workers and that's what we wanted to portray to them and like I like I feel like I'm very close like other people are close with the people who are um anti-union I guess you could say but still like even then I'm like we're very close so like I would I, I don't think it's come in between our relationship between them and I've really appreciated them because it's made me realize that we like our approach to giving information to people, like we need to be educated um, on union information. We need to be educated on Starbucks information to help educate uh, people who aren't as much as informed or people who are dead set on their views. Like we want them to know that it's just, it's a movement for them as well as for us. So, yeah. And I think that that's a really good approach, um, you know, not not alienating people that are anti-union right off the bat. Um, Jane McAlevey has a really good story in, in one of her books about a nurses union where one of the leaders in the anti-union campaign, um, the, the anti-union campaign ultimately lost. They won their union election. Um, but because she was such a strong leader in the workplace and she had so many people following her after they won, you know, after the union won the election, they went up to her and they were like, OK, look, you know, we won the election. We're going to be bargaining a contract. We mm-hmm. would like you to be involved in yeah. making the contract. And she got on the committee, the bargaining committee, and she's flipped total 180. And she's a really big union advocate. And, um, you know, flipped a lot of people when she came over and, and it's a really strong union, a nurses union over there in Pennsylvania now. So. I mean, I would say the main thing is, I mean, the reason that people at our store are anti-union is because they're scared. And it mm-hmm. is a very, I was scared in the beginning. It's a, it's a very scary situation to say, here's the business that you work at. You're making more than a lot of people in Scottsboro. Like this is the best job that like I could get this best job I could get and I was so scared of losing my job but it's you know the reason you're scared is because you don't know that's why they're scared they don't know I was scared I learned I'm not scared anymore so I I would say the main thing is just getting people to know more about the union form their own opinions know about what's going on and then the fear goes away and then they're more on the union side and ultimately, even if it is the best job in the world, that doesn't mean that your boss ought to have total say over every single thing that happens. You know, I mean, the workers ought to have a say in what happens in their workplace. Like you said, Caitlin, where you spend most of your waking hours, like, you know, I mean, most of the time that you're awake, you're at work. I want to have yes. some kind of say. Uh, absolutely. Yes, yes. And, um... So I wanted to say this earlier, but like my main reason for wanting to do this union was Starbucks everywhere has cut hours so badly that there's people who don't even qualify for the benefits anymore. For example, a woman we work with who's been working there for what, eight years? A lot of years. Many Many years. years. (laughs) 
um, she's not getting scheduled enough hours to actually qualify for these benefits that she's had for the past eight years. And um, me, for example, when the hours got cut, um, it got to a point where I would be lucky if I got 25 hours. I would have weeks where I was scheduled less than 20 hours. And I'm a shift supervisor. Mm-hmm. Um, for probably about a solid two months, I had to make the choice between, okay, am I going to eat or am I going to pay my rent? And it was just, that's when I finally decided, okay, we have to do something. Even if all these threats that they're making are true, it cannot get worse. Like I have to have a living here. And what's funny is like, she mentioned like, even if those threats are true, they're not. Like it's literally Starbucks pretty much breaking the law, like, and to try and dissuade and union bust. Like once we started like letting partners know that these threats were kind of empty and that it was pretty much illegal. They were like, Oh my goodness. Like, are you serious? And we're like, yeah, like federal law. Like, and they were like, Whoa. And like Caitlin was saying, like, it shouldn't nowhere. No one should deserve to choose between rent or food or no one should choose. Like, No one should have to work at a job and have to pick up shifts and like pick up unreasonable amounts of shifts just to be able to get their benefits. Like it's, that's not, what Starbucks is supposed to stand for. That's not what they say in the beginning of the interviews where we have all these benefits. And then Mm. you're like, well, you're not giving us the hours to get them. Yes. So it's, and then they claim that even with four hours a week, you can still get these benefits. Well, you can't. And even if you could, four hours a week is not a livable wage. Mm -hmm. Like this isn't a side job. This is a career for many people. Mm -hmm. And make $48 a week. You'll be fine. Literally. Yeah, I do remember one time that really hit home for me is I remember a manager said, in a perfect world, I'd be able to give every one of y'all 20 hours a week. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and in what perfect world do you think? I don't know. <laughs> in a perfect world. Very, very small imagination. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's, I, I mean, that's just bizarre. And, and you know, the thing about their threats being against the law, you know, I mean, companies do break the law sometimes. But but what is the response to that? You know, they wouldn't be able to break the law if every single Starbucks store was unionized. And, you know, they had to go up against all 9000 stores, all of their workers saying, you know, uh, we're ready to strike if you mess with these people over here in Scottsboro. Like that's the way to actually get the things done and 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 fight those threats is by coming together. It's not by trusting that oh they're just going to be good and 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 uh, benevolent with all of the power that we're allowing to have. It's no, it's to take the power from them. It's to recognize the power that you have and 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 use it. And and what y'all are doing in Scottsboro and Birmingham is a great. A great step towards that. I mean, coming up on 200 unionized uh, Starbucks across the country, 8,800 more to go. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. And what's really funny is like, even though they have these, so like all these stores, just all the talks of just like maybe 2,000, like 200, not 2,000, 200 stores. And they're already doing this. They're already trying to give better like benefits. Like, 
the credit card tipping because mm, yes. I mean that was what I think Buffalo the Buffalo stores that were started this that's like what they included in their contract when they and Starbucks was probably like oh no we need to we need to do something and then we got to take it back to us and it's like nothing was done until we made something absolutely. yeah absolutely yeah it's I mean in our store that was a big thing was as soon as we became public with the union and whatnot, they were here to fix they it. They were, yeah, we yeah. were, everything was getting fixed. Yeah, you I, know, suddenly, hours, I suddenly get it, started getting more hours. We got approved for overtime. Like all of this stuff was happening. And it's like, do they expect us to think that this is a coincidence? So oh, I asked when in my meeting, I too. said, I, I said, so it's just a coincidence. They said, yeah. Yes. Yeah. They said, yeah, it's just a coincidence. It took three weeks from yada, yada, yada. Like it doesn't, I don't care if you say it's a coincidence or not. It cannot be. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're not going to feel better now because you're coming and you're giving us all this nice stuff. It's The damage was already done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, it should have been good from the beginning. Yeah. And I would think, I like to add to that. Like, it's starting to wear away. Like, they're, mm-hmm. the stuff that they promised, all the stuff that they said they would do, it's still empty. Like, they did it for a little bit, and then it's mm-hmm. starting to cut back now. And they've just, like, gotten very strict it's very like they want to make work where it's not fun anymore like mm-hmm. i mean it, you, we used to have like a, like that's why we're so close at our stores because we made it fun to work yeah. under horrible conditions and now they're just like you pretty much can't have a conversation mm-hmm. anymore at work because it takes away from the partner experience and i'm like you take away from the experience when you give the like the store three people to work with on a weekend and they're having to work all these positions and barely have time to talk to a customer that has paid so much for a drink and can't even have a good experience because Starbucks won't even adequately staff that store. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's it's just a whole experience with Starbucks right now. So yeah, yeah. I mean, if they are, um, you know, giving y'all raises giving y'all more benefits and, and, and things like this. With 200 unionized stores, think about once you get 1,000, once you get 2,000, 3,000, 8,000, 9,000. That, that would be the ideal world. And you know what? I think I'm very like hopeful in the Starbucks partners. Like I feel like they like it's not just their store. Like Other stores across the state, other stores across the country, even internationally, Starbucks is not treating their partners like partners like they say they are. They People are starting to see. People are starting to see that they aren't, and they're starting to take actions into their own hands. And I'm, I'm very proud of Starbucks partners and everything that they do. Even Starbucks Workers United with supporting us and it being Starbucks workers. like hmm. They've been outstanding, and I'm very proud of partners here at the store and across the state and the country and internationally. So. Yeah, we've really, really come together recently. Mm-hmm. I would like to add that um, during a meeting with the Gunnersville, not the Gunnersville, the Birmingham store, um, I was able to sit in with Garrett. And we were told that if we unionize, it'll be big because of where we're located. We're kind of located pretty much in the middle of enemy territory. You know, it'll be very hard for us to do it. I, I think that adds to the fact that we need to fight even harder. Mm-hmm. Yeah, That's why we're fighting because it would make such a big change and show other small towns like Scottsboro, whatever, that, you know, it's possible. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. possible to unionize no matter where you're at, Yeah, no matter how many people are at your store. Absolutely. I find it very poetic, too, because if you look at, like, um, the Great Awakening, a lot of, like, there's theories about how coffee attributed 
a lot of it, like with Ben Franklin and Thomas Edison. Like most of their ideas um, were so inside coffee shops mm-hmm. and mm. like the cat simulation of uh, the brain. And I kind of feel like at Starbucks, you know, they tend to attract employees who do think more critically mm-hmm. and um, aren't as like, like you're saying focus. in the beginning. Yeah, yeah as, as like, as I like said, following the rules mm-hmm. and um, being like, yes, thank you, boss. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Adam, you've been pretty quiet. Uh, have you got any questions that I haven't asked him? Sure, I do have a question. But before I get to that, I just want to say how freaking proud I am of all of y'all for, for what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, because Scottsboro, that is important uh, to show that other small towns even in conservative and and rural areas can do this. It's not just big cities like Birmingham or Buffalo. It can be anywhere. It can be your community, wherever you're listening. And so that's huge. And and also just frankly, it's probably the oldest person in this (laughs) zoom right now. Um, I'm just uh, incredibly proud. um, And it makes me feel very, very hopeful to see young folks who get it and are willing to take risk to make their lives better and to improve the lives of, of their fellow workers. That's what it's all about. That's, um, that's not, that's what unionism is about. And frankly, to me, that's what humanity is all about is trying to take care of one another uh, and lift each other up. So my question is for anyone who's out here listening, uh, especially those of us who are in North Alabama, is, is there anything that we can do, uh, as customers or as allies, what can we do to support y'all's campaign? So, um, Sarah, Emma, do y'all have anything you want to add? I would I- love to pipe in on that one. Sure. <laughs> so the best thing that I think has been helping us is coming in and telling us that you're supporting us. Um, so, the no. manager's hearing that. It, like, I will tell you, Jacob, um, I saw Nog gave you a little bit of attitude earlier, our store manager. Uh, I noticed it. I picked up on it. And it's because you are pro-union and Absolutely. you're here supporting us. So people coming in, it makes a difference. Um, it helps us feel supported and it helps show um, the managers that, like, the community isn't against us. Like, they're, they know that it's the right decision and they're, like, they're in for a fight, you know? So if you guys come in and, like, tell us that, like, hey, Great job unionizing. We love to hear it. We love to see it. Like that that means a lot to us. Absolutely. And just yeah. definitely chime in with what Sierra said. Like that support. Like when people come in and customers ask us, like, hey, why are you wanting to unionize? Like, ask us, hey, what did you actually face from Starbucks? What are they actually what's the truth and how they're actually treating you? What have you dealt with, honestly? And like that support, because like, you know, I wear my Starbucks Workers United pin on my apron every day at work. And I had so many people asking, hey, what's this about? Like, how's it going? What's your efforts looking like? And I'm like, oh, my gosh, yes. Thank you so much for the support. Like, I'll totally talk about it. But that support from everyone is just so great because everyone wants to feel loved and like they belong somewhere. So that support is just amazing. Mm-hmm. Just yeah. just talking to us, you know. And yeah. I can't speak for everybody, but I love to talk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And it's, it's like Emma and Sierra said, it's 
really nice to see that we're not in this alone. Because exactly. at times at the store, it 100% feels like whenever we first went public and we saw all those Facebook comments, oh, people calling horrible. us lazy ungrateful all these things some man told us that guy. we don't deserve a living wage yes mm-hmm. he said what, what makes you think <laughs> what makes you think you <laughs> can go to college <laughs> literally yeah. i was like okay but okay. i think i think in that way it's just more so of like i mean in a way i felt sympathy oh, yes. because he didn't understand or he didn't mm-hmm. see like i think people are just so misinformed or uneducated on this subject where they're just like set in their ways and it's sad to see such a beautiful like beautiful place be so set hard on their views and really like if we just like accepted people as people and humans as humans if we would just do that i think like our community and our state and even our country and the world would be a much better place Mm -hmm. in that way but like to add what y'all were saying, like to go off Sierra and what everyone else has said, when we see those partners, like when we see people come in and customers come in and they're very supportive of us and they're like, we're so proud of you. Like it means a lot because we come into work and our managers are attacking us. They're pulling us aside awesome. to threaten us about benefits. They, they're like, I mean, we're, when we see a customer come in like, and they're like supportive of us or even just have a good mood it's very, very impactful to us because it shows us that our, like our community is an amazing community and just seeing that it just shows us that it is one. And I guess another thing to add to that, we have a community board on, in our store, it's close to the bathrooms. If you walk into the main entrance, it's to the right. Um, Yeah. Like if you want to like write on a sheet of paper, be like, Hey, I'm so proud of you guys. Like pro union, vote union. Yes. Or any supportive things or just a personal comment. Like, I would love to see that on our community board. I would absolutely love to see that. And to be honest, Starbucks would probably take it down because it's pro-union or supportive of us partners. Mm-hmm. So, but it would just show the community and us and other workers, other partners out there, and that the corporation doesn't care. The corporation doesn't care. Um, but, yeah, definitely seeing the customers come in with support and just – opening up that community board and fill it full with personal, like supportive notes. Like I would love that. Yeah. Another thing I would say for anybody interested in coming in and anybody interested in talking is, you know, all four of us, like everybody on this call right now is a part of the committee as of right now. So we're a little bit more educated, a little bit more involved than other people at the store. But when you come in and you even just talk to somebody wearing a pin or you talk to whoever, everybody hears it. And it does impact even the quietest worker. It, it impacts them. And, you know, even the pro-union people who are quiet and who are still a little bit nervous about it, mm-hmm. it it's really comforting to hear yeah, random strangers being in your support. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, like someone you've never seen before be like, yes. hey, I care about you. Like, hey, like, oh and you're like, oh, that's, that's- <laughs> not just support for us who are vocal about it it's support for everybody at the store even the ones who are quiet and reserved you know and i think i would even say like if like if we did have like supportive notes on the board if someone came in that were thinking about unionizing or unionizing there where they worked or something like that and they saw something like that there at starbucks that would probably be an initiative for them to like hey like this community here is so supportive of them i can do it 
I can do it. I have the means to do it. If this small community here is so vocal about it, I can unionize my place of work. Like, so it's definitely impactful, not just for us, but for everyone out there. So, yeah. Awesome. Well, folks, I don't have any, uh, any other questions. I don't think, Uh, is there anything else that you think is, um, you, you would want to make sure that you get across to, um, you know, folks that may be listening about your, uh, about your campaign or, or unions in general? Yeah, I would like to add one thing. Um, I think if someone uh, hears about this and they are like, oh, these are just a bunch of kids that are trying to do something or they're just doing this. And like, I think it's, I think um, I would just like to ask them just to say, we have adults, like we have grown adults, like we're adults. Like, I mean, I'm, I mean, I know some people might not see us, but like, I'm about to move out and like, pay bills in 21 Caitlin's paying bills. She's an adult. Corey's an adult. Um, we have older partners at our store that are adults as well that are pro-union. And it's more so of like we're trying to make it better for workers at Starbucks, for partners at Starbucks, and workers across the country, even worldly. We really just want them to know that it's not just, oh, we're trying to hurt the community or we're trying to raise prices on, like prices on the drinks. Starbucks is raising those prices, not the union. Starbucks is. So it's kind of just like ridiculous to like almost even think that because we are just wanting to make it better for us and even the customers that come in. Like we're trying to like, because if we had an adequate staff at Starbucks, for a fact that everyone at that store would be talking to the customers. And we try to do it now, but when you're being attacked from everywhere it's 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 very disheartening but like i mean our our community has like really came in so i'm very proud of it and i'll say and i'll say on behalf of someone who is you know people who aren't yet adults and younger teenagers and who might be younger listening you know you don't have to be an adult to make an impact you don't have to be older to be involved with stuff like this i mean i'm 16 years old Mm -hmm. i've done my research and I've gotten involved and you could say, you know, she's literally a child. Like she shouldn't be involved with any of this, but you know, I want things to be good for my generation and people who are my age because people who are my age are just now getting into work Mm -hmm. and I want it to be good when they actually move out. You know, Mm -hmm. there's no point in things staying the way they are when you can make it, when you can make an impact. And I I would like to add that we need to break the stigma of, you know, fast food workers don't deserve to make a living because yeah. fast food has become a very integral part of our society. Yeah. And if we want it to stay that way, if we want fast food restaurants around, you know, gone gone are the days where, like, you can work a fast food job to pay for your college, you know. Go yeah. work, work for the summer and pay for your college. You can't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. If we still want that as part of our society, we're going to have to have people working those jobs and they need to be paid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They, they can afford it. The corporations can easily afford it. Yeah, they make as much as the warehouse worker, uh, the warehouse companies make. Absolutely, if I mean, I think Starbucks, like they in the first quarter of this year, they made like seven point no eight point eight four eight point four eight point four billion dollars, and yet they can't uh, give like their partners the raise that they were promised in the summer benefits to even like live. So they it's gave kinda, the last CEO a multi million dollar uh, severance yeah. package. At the, at, the, at the exact same time that they cut our hours. Yes. Can you imagine getting fired 
with a two hundred or however million, however many million dollar check. Yeah, I mean, that basically that's not came, even fired. That that's basically that. came out of our pocket. <laughs> yeah. About to retire. Yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it did. I would like to add to Corey. It came out of the partners' pockets. Like mm-hmm. it came out that. Like I want partners to know that all of these higher people who are like, oh, we care about the partners. They're making multi million dollars, multi billion even, if yeah. not that. But like, put aside the new Yeah go two months without buying yeah, yeah but partners have to choose between food and living in a house or partners have to make do with like all this stuff for like choosing between benefits or having insurance it's it's just a shame that a company that preaches progression is very digressive so yeah literally well y'all are my heroes um, thank- absolutely. Oh, here, so. yes. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Seriously for, for yeah. what you're doing and for your words of wisdom, uh, because absolutely people can make a difference and, and yeah. y'all are proof of that. And we are sending nothing but love and solidarity y'all's way. And we encourage everybody listening Stop by the Scottsboro Starbucks, send some love and solidarity in person, leave some sweet mm-hmm. notes for them. Yeah. Even if management takes them down, we'll just fill yeah. it back up. Absolutely. Because we would love to see some new. Yes. Yeah. If, if, <laughs> if, anybody wants, uh, if anybody wants a carpool down from Huntsville, I've been going once a week and um, working from there. I'm able to work from home. So if, uh, if anybody wants to come hang, down, uh, come hang out with me in Scottsboro once a week, yeah. feel free to come Anyone? down. Yeah, and and very cool friends. I got to say, I was not cool enough at 16 years old to be on a union organizing committee. I mean, good grief. Yeah, no. I, and like, I would like to say, like, it's like it, any walk of life, like, yes. mm-hmm. however old are like you can still make an impact like no matter what you do your voice matters so definitely even if you're old like adam (laughs) (laughs) absolutely (laughs) you're old you can you can still make an impact literally (laughs) (laughs) all right (laughs) what was that garrett the the million years old maybe from the grave you know i mean that's anything that I would I want people to take away from listening here is you as a person listening right now can make an impact. I don't care if you think that you're the most small, small, insignificant person in the world. You're not at all. And if, I mean, that's the whole thing that a union stands for is everyone can make an impact. Mm -hmm. Yes. You're not sorry. Your voice is heard. It doesn't matter. Your voice is heard. And no, and anything, yeah, yes. and anything, not just unionizing, but yeah, yes. definitely unionizing. Sierra Moore, Garrett Ellison, Emma Ellison, Ava Holcomb, Caitlin Knowles, Corey Bean. Thanks for y'all's time. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. We, appreciate you. It. we appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, guys. Thank Thanks, you. Thanks, y'all. You can uh, support the program if you appreciate the work on our website or by our hat at tvlr.fm. With that, we'll see you next week.